When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Forever Dog And hello everybody, welcome to Godcast It's me, J-Dog I call myself for Jehovah That's cool Joined as always, of course, by my sidekick, Joan of Arc Hello, Joan Hello, my lord how are you today? You look uh, bright and shiny and illuminated as always. Newly polished. Thank you for noticing. We have a great show for you today. My guest today, none other than Jason Alexander. <gasps> I am very excited. It is a quality booking. Yes! Well done, Jesus. Nice. And I know Jesus himself is a big fan of our guest today. Is that not so, kiddo? Oh, yeah. Jason Alexander on Seinfeld. He was so convincing as an Italian. Okay. Is it just me or is it seems like Jesus is a little surly lately? Yeah. He could really use a bong hit, that kid. He could. He could. Well, this is the week for it, isn't it? This is 420 week. I know. <laughs> 420 week is this week, not last week. However, a lot of people listening to our show last week when we had Dr. Michio Kaku on the show. So smart. <laughs> very smart. And a lot of people listened to that interview and have been writing in wondering if Joan and I were not perhaps somewhat, uh, shall we say, intoxicated in an altered state hmm. during that interview with Dr. Kaku. They say that based on certain behaviors and comments made by the two of us during that interview. And I'm going to play a couple of excerpts now. And why do we need a God particle? Why do we need a Higgs boson? Well, you know, at the beginning of time, okay? the Big Bang, the yeah, universe fine, was like fine. a crystal. A you are going to have to ask a question. I know, I'm sorry. Crystal at I just the got a little paranoid. Okay, so um, the mind of God, that's my mind. So um, so are you saying that what you do scientifically is kind of also uh, theological? Well, Dr. Kaku, I want to thank you for stopping by for this perfectly normal interview. That was like every other interview. And I just want to let you know that for me, the God equation is me equals MK squared. Because the me is God and the MK squared is Michio Kaku squared. Whoa. That's you. My pleasure. <laughs> now, listening to that, I can totally understand how somebody might think that I, along with Joan, were... High mm -hmm. during that. But the truth is, we were high right. during that. We were we were very high. We smoked a lot of pot, some before, mainly during, and slightly a little bit after yeah. that interview. Oh, may I also point out, because I you are above the law, I am not, that um, marijuana is fully legal in heaven. Oh, yes. It's been legal there since 2012. Right. We were the first region of the afterlife to be legal with cannabis. They mm. did not legalize cannabis in hell until 2019. But yes, we were high. And the reason I got high is because we were talking about things like black holes and subatomic mm. particles and time travel. Quarks. These are things and qu quarks. I know that's your favorite. <laughs> I love that word. You're not high. You're not high now, are you? No, no, no. But 
I mean, I also, there was planetarium music. By the way, it was not Floyd. It was sound alike Floyd. So any lawyers out there, be mindful. It was not actually Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. When I was creating the universe, when I was creating the subatomic particles and the black holes and the possibility for time travel, et cetera, I was fucked up when all that stuff happened. Mm -hmm. And so I like to get fucked up again when we discuss it because it just takes me back to that glorious era before eras when there was no space, no time, and we all lived in a zero-dimensional wormhole in my mind, which was really fun for me. So happy 420, everybody. Hope you'll enjoy 420 and celebrate it any way you you see fit. How are you going to celebrate it, my lord? I probably will smoke my Venus bong. What's that? You know what an apple bong is or something like that? When you take an apple and you pour it out. It's the same thing, but with the planet Venus. I will drill a hole from the North Pole of the planet Venus all the way to the core of the planet. And I will stuff that shaft with cannabis. Mm -hmm. By the way, I use metaphysical cannabis. It's not the physical stuff that you use as human beings because you are limited to three-dimensional space and time. But it has the same effect. It's a a sativa metaphysical Mm -hmm. cannabis. I pack it pretty tight because mm-hmm. I'm God. I need a lot to mess me up. And then I just take a deep rip. Uh, I rip that whole thing into my lungs huh. and I exhale. And then I use the asteroid belt as a kind of shield and I hotbox the inner solar system. Oh, and it's cool. it's really fun. It's really fun. And then I just hang out in the sun and kind of keep warm and just kind of watch the hydrogen fusing into helium, and it's 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 fun, man. That sounds far out. I mean, like, because it's, you know, Venus. Well, I think that's enough discussion of my 420 plans. That's enough of the fun stuff. Now it's on to the part of the show where I have to help people by answering prayers and doing good deeds. It's kind of like your community service. Shut up, Joan. Prayer of the Week! All right, everybody, you know the deal. Every week of the billions of prayers offered to me, I answer one. And that one is one that is left on a review of this Godcast on Apple Podcast Reviews. Joan, what is this week's prayer? Oh, I'm excited about this week's Prayer of the Week. It comes to us from a fella named, and I don't know if this is his real name, Bacon Sandwich. Oh, I know bacon. I know bacon sandwich. Who we? He's oh, actually a guy really? named Jeremy, and he is a roadie for the string cheese incident. Oh. Really nice guy. Oh. He's going to live till the age of ninety-seven when he's hit by a bus. Mm. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so Jeremy Bacon Sandwich uh, left a really, really sweet review. Five stars. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, but his prayer slash question is: Could you enlighten us with a recipe? What would spice up a baked potato? Ah, great question. I love me a baked potato. I love potatoes in general. They are probably the most versatile crop I develop. There are hundreds and hundreds of different cultivars, although unfortunately the Irish only chose one of them to grow in their country, and when that one went bad, a little something called the Irish potato famine happened. Hmm. Hundreds of thousands of Irish people died. That was on me, of course, ultimately. All pestilences are on me, ultimately, although I was not mad at the Irish. I was mad at the potatoes. May I ask why? They know why. 
Okay. Anyway, the question was about how to spice up a baked potato. Well, mm -hmm. first of all, you bake it properly. You wrap it in tin foil. You puncture it with a fork over and over and over again to let the heat go through the skin. And you mm. put it in the oven, cook it at 450. Then when you're done, you put some toppings on it. Now, the toppings you want are, first of all, the basics, your melted cheese, your sour cream, and your chives. But there are two secret ingredients that are the key to a great baked potato. Number one, Trader Joe's Everything But The Bagel Seasoning. Mmm, I love that stuff. It is everything but the bagel seasoning. That means it's got onion, poppy, garlic, salt, everything you would find on a bagel, but not the bagel itself. It's delicious so on good. everything, particularly on a baked potato. And then the second ingredient, and you just need a little bit, a tiny, tiny bit, manna. You put a tiny bit of manna, sprinkle it on the top of the potato, right where you make the little cut where the wedge is. It's delicious. And if you don't know how to get manna, it's very simple. All you have to do is you go outside, you turn your eyes heavenward, and you say to me, oh Lord, I am about to embark on a 40-year journey through the desert without water, food, or provisions of any kind, I rely upon thee, make sure you say thee, not you, I rely upon thee to provide me with that which I need to survive. And instantaneously, manna will fall from heaven. And at that point, the only thing you need to do is immediately don some kind of helmet or headgear or umbrella because it will kill you. It will kill you if it falls on your skull. Huh. It's that powerful. And from that height, you can imagine it's falling from heaven, so it will kill you. But assuming you can avoid that obstacle, you will get the manna immediately, and it is good for food. You can melt it down for water. And as is relevant for this case, you crush it into a fine powder, and you sprinkle it on a baked potato, and it is delicious. All you need is about three drams. Three drams of manna for a typical baked potato. And I know drams is kind of an old, obscure, biblical unit. So to put it in modern terms, it's a half shekel's worth. So is, and then the potato is done at that point and ready to eat? Well, no, you should cook it in two parts. The first part is 25 minutes. You take it out. You cover it in oil. Could be butter. Could be avocado oil if you're health conscious. Then you put it back in. You cook it again at 450, you really let it get hot and steamy and really steam up. Then after 45 minutes total of cooking, you take it out and you put on the toppings as previously mentioned. And you have a delicious snack that will starch you up for the entire day. Hmm. Okay. What's wrong? Uh, it's just, I just feel kind of triggered because I, I really relate to the potato in this situation. I'm not sure. The heat Ryan. and the, you know. Oh, the... Joan. Joan, no one's puncturing you with a fork repeatedly. I, no, and no I one's slathering I you, you in cheese that. or sour cream and or drizzling manna on you. I didn't do any of that to me, but you're just You're just on fire. That the only thing is that you're on fire. You're not you're not in any way being treated like the potato. Is a baked potato co-hosting a very popular podcast with me? I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I don't think so, my lord. Not in this universe, it's not. I'm not speaking about potential alternate universe podcast 
where I'm co-hosting with a potato. But no, not in this universe. I'm not. You are my co-host right here. Thank you, my lord. You need to calm down a little bit. You're, you're very sensitive these days. Just settle, settle a little, okay? I'm settled. And that was Prayer of the Week. Prayer of the Week! Coming up, Jason Alexander. Hi, everybody. Tim Heidecker here with huge news. We have a terrific episode of Office Hours Live prepared for you. We had the great stand-up comedian Kyle Kinane come in and a very special in-studio music session from legendary Emdu Mokhtar. You're not going to want to miss this one. You can find it on your podcast app of choice by going to Sears or Macy's and getting an iPod and then coming home, charging it up, and listening through your app. My guest today is a star flautist and percussionist with the Livingston High School Marching Band who will be attending Boston University this fall to... Okay, this is an old card from the last time we had him on the show. Jesus, do we have... Is there an updated card on... No! (sighs) Okay, this is really... See, this is why I, I, we got to get the Holy Ghost back in here to help with this because this is just embarrassing. My guest today is Jason Frigging Alexander. Hello, Jason. How are you? Hello, Lord. Hello. Uh, yeah, you're, 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 you're most majestic. It is a pleasure to see you and be with you. I apologize for that introduction. Obviously, that was from the last time you were on the show back in 1977. Yeah. People at the time said, why are you having this guy on? Never heard of him. I don't think he'll do anything in yeah. life. Makes a lot more sense now. Makes a lot more sense now to have well, you on the show. Arguably, it's a coin toss. Yeah, it's a coin toss. I, I I think I know what I was doing, and I knew that you had a bright future ahead of you. Welcome to the show. Uh, COVID, getting over it finally. I saw on your Twitter feed that you just got your shots a couple of days Shot-ta. ago. I, I have one. I have one. I, I am waiting on number two. I have a couple of days to go before number two. How are you feeling? I got a little foggy for a couple of days. It did do that. Hmm. and But I got very weepy. I, I, they gave me the shot and, and I teared up a little bit with my wife and, and it's that release of all this tension that you don't, you're not aware of on a day-to-day basis that you've been carrying for yeah. all this time. And all of a sudden this ray of hope goes in your arm and, you, and, and it's, it starts to open up your heart a little bit and you realize how hard this has been. And if it's been hard for me and I've been blessed, thank you, by the way, thank you for my blessings. But um, I do what I can. I appreciate it. But, you know, just imagine people have really been struggling for this past year. It's extraordinary. So it was it was wonderful. Thank you for asking. I was going to ask you, you've been like everybody wearing a mask for the last year. But unlike most people, you are a public figure. You're usually recognized a lot when you go out. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that happened less so while you're wearing a mask. Was that enjoyable for you? Less enjoyable? What was that experience like compared to 20 years of a lot of fame when you walk around? It, 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 I have to say it is a very nice thing to to be anonymous when when you want to be anonymous. The mask was extremely helpful unless I spoke. Apparently, my voice gives me away. So I've had, I've had a hat, sunglasses, and a double mask, and I say, hello there, and people go, oh my God, Jason Alexander. Um, so and you've never thought to change your voice in that kind of situation? I, I've tried, but then I thought, you know, I thought if I did some dopey accent, like if I started to talk with a British accent or something like that, and then they realize it's me, and then I go, well, now I'm a schmuck. I'm just, I'm just a fool. So I, I figured, eh, 
roll with it. Speaking of rolling with it, that's a perfect segue into my first question, which is merrily we roll along. Yes. That's your first major role on Broadway, starting in the premiere of the Stephen Sondheim musical, Merrily We Roll Along in 1981. And as you know, that musical is notorious in musical theater circles and Sondheim loving circles of which I may or may not be a member. What is it about that show that keeps drawing people to keep trying to do it over and over again, and yet it never seems to get over the hump that really every other Stephen Sondheim show has gotten over in terms of acceptance? Yeah, yeah. Well, I won't blame you. Uh, I won't blame anyone. Um, I, I think people keep coming back to the well for Merrily because of primarily Stephen's contribution, which was a, a pretty damn glorious score. The score is, you know, is irreproachable. It's beautiful and it's, and it's brilliant. It is attached to a story that has been difficult from the day it was conceived by Kaufman and Hart back in the 30s. It's just the construction and I guess the, the basic story of, in the case of the musical, it is a, an ambitious uh, songwriter and lyricist and their young journalist female friend who believe you know, if they do their work correctly, they'll they'll shift the world. They'll they'll make a difference in the world, and then the composer eventually compromises his ideals and goes off. And <laughs> I think in the latest incarnation, he's a B movie producer in Hollywood kind of thing. And the story has to cast him in a sort of tragic light. The selling out of his talent and the selling out of the possibility and his friends is what's supposed to make this a tragic cautionary tale. And for me, it has never carried the weight of that. I, I understand how two idealistic young songwriters could think, I'm going to change the world. But from a, an adult perspective, it is rare that a song changes the world. It contributes to the world. It can shift understanding. It can move people's hearts. But it doesn't change the world. So the idea of a, uh, you know, a cabaret composer selling out doesn't carry the tragic weight of perhaps a, a journalist selling out or a politician selling out or a great leader selling out. And, and so the tragedy that the show wants to present itself as, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't have the gravitas in its DNA to do it. So people keep trying to make the story of the show work. I don't think it ever will, but that score is so glorious that it really is just an excuse to showcase that score again. And then you went on to also direct the next musical Sondheim wrote, which fared quite better, which is Sunday in the Park with George, which is yeah. really one of the best musicals yeah. of all time. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And yeah, it was and it was thrilling. I was approached by the Reprise Theater Company here in Los Angeles, and they do things very much like the Encore series in New York. There's a very small window to rehearse. In our case, it was really six days in the studio and five days of tech, and then boom, you're up and you're running for two weeks. It's, it's in and out. And they came to me and said, we'd like to do Sunday in the Park with George. And would you direct it? And I said, you can't do Sunday in the Park with George. And they're like, why not? And I said, well, first of all, the painting, you don't have the painting. You don't have any semblance of the painting. All the shows were done at, at a theater at the UCLA campus. And a, a um, art major, a fine art major, had actually done a copy of, of uh, The Island of Le Grand Jat. And it was pretty good. And under the right lights, it really looked very good. So suddenly we had the painting and I sort of reverse engineered a way to do it for a very limited budget that was, I think, kind of magical. And, and what, what really made the magic happen was a glorious cast 
headlined by a still very young and, and just beginning to break out Kelly O'Hara as Dot, and a wonderful actor, who I think the world of, Manuel Felciano, who was in Sondheim's Broadway production of Sweeney Todd, where they play their own instruments. He was Tobias, um, wonderful actor. And, and they, they did a glorious job of it. And man, that music, it, it, is, it, it never ceases to inspire and anytime I'm going, oh, I can't do anything, nothing I do is good, I just sit there and go, anything you do, let it come from you, then it will be new, give us more to see. And I go, okay, the world is right. And the end of Act One, the, the end of Act One is just transcendent. The Sunday's number, it's unbelievable. And I first saw that show when it was only one act at Playwrights Horizons. And, it, you know, I, I remember thinking, well, that's it. There's, <laughs> he told the story that there's nothing else they can do. And then seeing it on Broadway and just having my head spin around at, at the creation of that second act. And you're a man of the theater, and you yourself have a Tony for Jerome Robbins' Broadway in 1989. Yeah. What I want to ask you about that is that show had 70 performers in it every night, correct? Yep. How did that make money? How, how do you make money? Like, did you charge $1,000 a seat for that? Well, at the time in 1989, it was the most expensive musical ever. It was, I think it was a $9 million uh, by the time it opened. Uh, it was the first show, I think, to charge more than $100 for an orchestra seat. And it didn't make a ton of money. It ran for a year and a half on Broadway. I don't think it made its investment back. And yet it did have a tour, had a national tour and a Japanese production. I, I think it was a lost leader, that show. It was one of those things where the, the Schubert organization said, we should do this. Um, there's no way they're they're going to recoup. But right, it was such a glorious effort, and and uh, it was just important to have a, a chronicle of that man's theater work because it, before that production, it really didn't exist. The ex the the extent that he had to go to to recreate those numbers because notes had been lost there there were in some cases some film footage from literally you know eight millimeter cameras that somebody in the audience had shot of one thing or another but a lot of it was built by by getting original cast members to come back and go what did we do on these eight bars anybody remember this that and the other thing and so now that the the show was recreated all those numbers were recreated more or less exactly how they had been done and now lives in this gorgeous chronicle in in Lincoln Center. That, that's a pretty big. Um, th that's a big contribution to the music, musical theater uh, anthology. So good, good on the Schuberts. There are methods of notating choreography. Yeah, like I know Labino, I, if People don't know that, but there yeah. are methods as as obscure as it may sound. Uh, Laba notation. Yes, and and other methods. Did you use any of that for that show? Uh, we, I don't know if we did. We, I, I hope somebody did by the time we finished the production and locked everything in. Jerry Robbins uh, apparently rarely used it. And part of the reason he rarely used it is, and he did it on our show too, he would make changes up until the downbeat of the overture on opening night. So it was impossible. Eventually, you would think some dance captain would would chronicle uh, in Lava Notation the, the, the moves. But if they had, he had he did not have access to most of those notes when he began our show. Now, theater is a crucial part of your life. It's where you got started. You've returned to it time and time again. And as we both know, the last year has been very, very difficult for everybody, but particularly for the theater world, because theater is all yeah. about being there, being there live with other people. That's the entire point of the enterprise. It is now just right. starting to reemerge. 
on Broadway and the West End and other places. Mm -hmm. You are very passionate about having it come back in full glory. I'm going to play a little bit of a message you recently posted on your Twitter account concerning that. Well, unfortunately, we find ourselves in another plague, all of us, the plague of COVID-19. It's hit all of us. But in that theater community that I love so much, it has devastated. No live performance. Every theater, everywhere, shuttered, dark for over a year. And I am proud to once again be able to tell you that your simple donations of five, ten, twenty dollars, whatever you can spare, can make a huge difference if you put them in our virtual red buckets during our 12-day matching challenge. I and several of my theater friends are waiting at broadwaycares.org. Now, it's a friendly competition to see whose bucket fills the most as we try to raise one million dollars in 12 days. And it's a matching grant. So if we reach it, that $1 million instantly becomes two, and so many lives get changed. The theater is coming back. The doors are going to open. So let's make sure there's a community of great people there to greet you. So for those of us who care about live theater, what is the scene currently like in New York? How are producers planning to bring Broadway back? From what I understand from my producer friends, there are constant meetings among themselves, among um, uh, the city of New York, uh, and, and among the various unions, the Actors Union, the Musicians Union, the, the uh, Stagehands Union, about how to do this. We're hearing a lot of talk about September of this year being uh, a soft opening of theaters. The people that work in the theater, it's a good bet they'll have been in inoculated by then. But the real question that I have, and I don't know if anybody else is asking this, is let's say you're you're the producer of Wicked. You're Mark Platt and you've got Wicked. And I don't know what the running nut is on that show every week, but it's in the high six figures. The show was running for over 10 years. Now you're going to bring it back. You're going to open your box office. Does the city of New York say you can open to 100% capacity or 60% capacity? And at 60% capacity, can you make that nut? Can you make that nut if you were charging exactly what you were charging before the pandemic? And then question two becomes, can you charge exactly what you were charging before the pandemic? Do people have those kinds of disposable dollars to invest in the theater in a show that if you live in New York, you've probably seen once or twice already? So some of these big returning musicals, particularly, tend to be tourist shows. Are tourists coming back to New York? There's so many unknowns about how you reopen Broadway, not necessarily theaters, because theaters across the country tend to know who their audience is, and they tend to have some reasonable expectation of what business may be and how to adjust for their local audience. But Broadway is the mecca of commercial theater in our country. There is no knowing who the audience is going to be from day to day and week to week. So there are so many vagaries and questions to be answered in order to have a successful reopening. The worst thing that could happen is to reopen Broadway and have it fail. Um, I, I can't even imagine what that would be. But I, I'm in a position where I'm dealing with producers of new shows and trying to figure out how do you... We're, we're, we were talking a little bit about we want to start to put out offers to actors so that we have a cast ready when the theaters are ready to come back. Well, how do you put out an offer to an actor when you go, well, we don't know exactly when, and we don't know exactly where, and we don't know exactly how, and we don't know exactly how much we can pay you, but hey, you want to do a show? So it's a little, we're just, as, as much as everyone's 
focus is on all the right things, there are more questions, I think, than answers right now. But I'm not in the inner circle of of being a a theater producer in New York. So there there may be more answers than I'm aware of. But as I talk to my friends, it is still um, a a many-headed beast that somebody's trying to tame. But it could also provide an opportunity for someone or two people, three people to serve as white knights to essentially rescue Sure. An entire industry, some stars to come in and be able to say, we helped pull Broadway from the abyss single-handedly. Well, you betcha. And, you know, already we, we know, and he's been adamant about it, um, uh, Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster are bound and determined. They're doing that music, man, that, you know, is supposed to happen four times already, and he is committed to it. That's a big deal. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker and her husband, Matthew Broderick, are committed to doing Plaza Suite. That's a big deal. That's going to help. So... The only downside of that, honestly, is every time a movie star or a TV star takes those roles, those are a few less jobs for people who make their living in the theater. And I would love to see when the theater does come back, I'd love to see the audience say, hey, give us, give us the people that have been part of our community for 10, 20, 30 years. Let's, let's make theater about theater actors again. And, and that would be a beautiful thing. Coming up, more with Jason Alexander. Although, why is he called Jason Alexander? He's not a Jason, and he's not an Alexander. You are somewhat famously an obsessive fan of a classic show, Star Trek. Oh, sure. You're also the star of a classic show, Seinfeld. Both of those shows have tons of obsessive fans. Which show do you know more of by heart? Without question, Star Trek. (laughs) Without question. Because Star Trek, I watched obsessively. Uh, I, I've probably seen every episode of the original series of Star Trek. I've probably seen them 30, 40, 50 times. I, I don't think I've seen any episode of Seinfeld more than once or twice. And I've probably forgotten most of them. You've had a number of, uh, what I'm sure for you, were very meaningful encounters with William Shatner over the years. Yeah, I met Bill. Bill was purchased for me for my 35th birthday by friends of mine. Uh, and we had lunch together, and and we, uh, you know, I, we're friendly. I, it's not like we hang out all the time. And we've had a couple of occasions to work together and and sit and play together. And he's he's a fascinating guy. He's one of the reasons I became an actor. I was so smitten with Star Trek, I didn't really want to be an actor. I wanted to I wanted to captain the Enterprise, and I thought emulating him in some way would would be the road to that. So, and it, it, it's it, he's one of the guys who, when I met him, I was not disappointed. I said, I know exactly what I'm going to get. I know who he's going to be, and he was that and more. (laughs) So it's been a treat to have him in my life. I would have to think William Shatner is probably the most Shatner-esque person in the world. He's got Shatner down to a fine art. He really knows how to do Shatner. Yeah. But, you know, at at, at 90 years old, this guy has more joie de vivre and and more energy for stuff than anybody I've ever seen. He's fascinated by everything. He'll never turn down anything, really. And as a result, he's gone all over the world. He's done all kinds of things. He's played all kinds of roles. He's been all kinds of people in his life. He's, uh, if someone, especially he, if he was able to really do a great autobiography, it'd be a fascinating read. But somebody uh, in second position to that should, should do a great biography on him because his life is fascinating. He, he goes from Star Trek to living in his car. You know, it's amazing. You're, I know you're a you're a fairly liberal guy, big supporter of Obama, no fan of Ted Cruz. Explain to me how it is that I've read recently that Jason Alexander was at the insurrection on January 6th wearing a red Trump 45 hat. 
Yes, I've heard about that. How how is that possible? Well, as you know, Lord, there are there are several Jason Alexanders out there. I often read headlines about my name and go, I I don't think I did that. That one, I believe, was the ex uh, Mr. Britney Spears. It's that Jason Alexander. That's correct. He was married to Britney Spears for a total of fifty five hours, which is over yes. 3,000 minutes if you do yes. the math. So quite impressive. And, a, and good 55 hours. I, th- I think he'd look back fondly. Yes. Yeah, that was the, that was him. And even that, I think, was supposedly, was that a, a doctored photo the Trump had? I've heard I've heard both stories about that. No, I, I think it really was Britney Spears' 55-hour husband, whose name is Jason Alexander, at the insurrection yeah. on January 6th, wearing a red Trump 45 hat and doing disservice to your name, which, yeah. while not your birth yeah. name, is still the name by which you're most commonly known. I, I claimed it for my very own. That's right. And therefore, I've planted a flag in it, and it should be respected for that. As your name indicates, and as many, many other things indicate, you're Jewish, like me. We're, we're both Jewish. Oh, inescapably, yes. What are your thoughts on... I'm thine truly. My sense is, is that even though you're one of the chosen people, you haven't necessarily chosen me all that much. Am I right? Well, I didn't really get a choice. I have a um, a mostly love-hate uh, relationship with Judaism. I Culturally, I love it. Couldn't be happier to be Jewish. I have never understood religion. I mean, no offense. I feel like you and I have a fantastic relationship. First of all, I actually have real real faith in you. I can't figure out uh, how you how you roll, but I I think you're out there. I really do. Oh wow! Hold the, hold on. Just just um. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I do. That's, uh... Where I where I draw the line is I I don't I don't know that you uh, you know I I find it hard to believe you scrolled in some stones. Uh, I I find it hard to believe in the religious aspect, but spiritually I feel like you and I connect very very well. I talk to you a lot. I don't know if you you hear, but you've you've Certainly, anecdotally, you have uh, been very kind to me, almost disproportionately kind, I would say. So I, I feel very good about our relationship, religious or not. Well, it's either because I love you personally, Jason, very, very much and look after you, or it's because, statistically speaking, out of 7 billion people, there will be some people who are treated very, very well by the dumb luck of the odds, and you happen to fall True. in that category. Exactly. It would mean a lot to me if you preferred to think of it as the first that's the first option. I I, I I I feel like there's a little a little sparkle in your eye for me. I do. Yes, I absolutely. By the way, I'm like you too. I'm I'm more spiritual than religious. Yeah. Uh, I'm 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 the exact same way. You know, without well, who, who would you be praying to? I mean, you know. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's a, it's a long story. I do I do have a boss. If you look at it from a bigger context over this universe and look at it from the multiversal context oh, i do have I it. a boss uh and in, in his uh, eyes i'm a regional manager if that makes sense i was gonna say i didn't realize you were running a department i thought you were the guy no, yeah no in his eyes i'm a regional manager so it's it, it's not as glorious from his perspective as it, it should uh, be sure. from from yours what's your favorite jewish holiday by the way what uh, there's a lot to, lot to choose from is it the one where you celebrate not being killed or the one where you remember being killed <laughs> uh yeah they're they're all uh i used to be a big fan of sukkot i thought that was fun yeah. we'd have the the palm leaf and the a lemon and i thought oh this is fun 
Purim was fun because it was like Halloween. That was okay. Passover was a little bit of a drag. Hanukkah was always a second run to me. I, I, I thought, yeah, everyone's working really hard to make this Christmas, and it's a real swing and a miss. Sukkah is a great holiday. Uh, that's, that's actually kind of a, fantastic. A, a pre-religious holiday. It's a harvest festival holiday. Yes. And it's my favorite time of year because, Jason, there's a sukkah born every minute. <laughs> oh, uh, I see what you did. I get it. You have to laugh. I'm God. You have to find that funny. I know. I did. I had deep appreciation and a chortle. You'll hear it on the tape. Okay. Okay. Do you, did you fully appreciate the cleverness of the of the wordplay there? Because it's very important I did. To me. I feel like I did, even if your audience does not. I feel like I did. There's a famous quote by Voltaire, God is a comedian playing to an audience who's too scared to laugh. Oh. I try to make sure the audience is not too scared to laugh. I want the audience, in this case you, to feel welcome yes. to laugh and no pressure to laugh. Just understand that I do ultimately have... The decision as to what your afterlife fate is going to be, and it, it, yes, you know, life and, and death. I, various I, I factors go into my decision, but having said that, please don't force any laugh. I'm a tough laugh, but believe me, I wrote it down. Though I'll be using it. Uh, another random thing in your career. Explain to me how you wound up uh, fronting a touring stand-up comedy show in Australia. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, some some wacky Australian guy. I had my family and I were going to Australia on a vacation. And I had begun uh, and and enjoying and doing I, I, seemingly quite well. I had begun teaching master classes for actors, and I knew I was getting a whole bunch of fan mail from Australia. So I said to my reps, "Hey, you know what? Uh, when we're going, they're still in school. Why don't you call like the University of Melbourne or the University of Sydney and see if they would like me to do a master class?" And I thought maybe you know they'd give me an honorarium at my pay for one one of my family's plane tickets go dingoes and they come back oh, yeah right and <laughs> go dingoes is right <laughs> cassowaries rule um and uh, they i don't know how it got to this guy uh uh arnie lang artie lang uh who manages all these comics australian comics and they came back and said hey look if you would headline for two weeks a uh, a, a comedy show local comics uh, at the uh, Crown Casino in Melbourne, uh, we'll pay you a boatload of money. We'll bring your whole family in and we'll pay you. And I went, yeah, I, I, that's great, except I'm not a I'm not a comic. And they said, no, you don't have to be a comic. You only need like 20 minutes of material and then the rest you'll introduce. And I went, yeah, that's great. I don't have 20 minutes of material. I don't have one minute of material. I'm not a comic. And then they told me what they'd be willing to pay me. And I went, I will be the funniest mother on that stage. You just wait. So I went to my friend, Peter Tilden, who's my writing and producing partner. And I said, Peter, we need 20 minutes. We got to figure it out. And we had a great time putting it together. And, you know, Jerry Seinfeld talks about this all the time. He, he feels like since the success of the TV show, the first 10 minutes of his stand-up doesn't count. He said that he could go out there and blow his nose and people will think it's very funny. So I, I was able to succeed based on that truth, that the first 10 minutes of my 20-minute set they're just going, oh, hey, it's George. And, and they're having a grand old time. So I really, I just had to skate by and, and, and I, was, I was able to do that. You've never had any inclination voluntarily without being asked to do stand-up. That's not your thing. I, uh, first of all, I, I, I knew it was an art before I met Jerry and his friends. I certainly know it's an art right now. You don't just do it. You have to kind of yes. figure it out. Um, and I never was inspired to that. I also would, what stand-up comics love that I don't love is they love working in one. They love working alone. I hate working alone. Uh, I've done 
touring shows where I'm, you know, the guy. And it's you're backstage and you're by yourself. And it's it's kind of fun when you get out in front of the audience, you get to play with the audience. But when you come from the theater, you go to the theater, you start having a good time the minute you walk through the stage door because you're with your friends, you're with your community, and you're 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 doing this thing together. You're you're part of a a joint effort. All of that gets lost when you're a stand-up comic, unless you're hanging out with the comics back at the bar at the end. But when you're doing your thing, you're alone. That that's not fun for me. I don't love that. Right. You're you're primarily an actor. That's that's what you I, I think so. That's what I'm accused of. Yes. You mentioned that you teach an acting masterclass. So I guess that means over the past year, despite COVID, you have continued to teach. I've been teaching fairly full-time over Zoom since last May. It grew out of, I'd been doing masterclasses for 25 years, but I'd never actually stayed with a group of students and, you know, worked in a, in a sort of ongoing way. But a bunch of college students, uh, seniors were getting screwed out of their senior year. And I was doing Zoom Q&A things and talking about method and whatnot. And enough of them were interested. They said, well, would you ever consider trying to do a masterclass over the Zoom? And, and then one became two and two became three. It's been a pretty ongoing class since last May. And what it's taught me is that teaching is, is going to stay a big part of my life. It is incredibly rewarding. I enjoy doing it. The, the students seem to get quite a bit from it. And, uh, you know, if, if somebody said to me, well, the, the rest of your professional career is over. I would hang up a shingle and go do this and be very happy. I know this is an age-old kind of cliched question, but I would love to hear your take on it. Can comedy be taught? Can you learn how to be funny? Or is it something that to some extent you just have to be born with? I'm a bad one for this question. I'll tell you why. I didn't want to, I never saw myself as a comic actor and I never thought I was particularly funny. And when I was in college, I had a professor who could see I was trying to be Bill Shire. I was trying to do the great classic roles and whatnot. And he he basically pulled me into his office and said, look, I know you want to be Hamlet, but you you got to get good at Falstaff. Because I was I, I was five feet five, I was 25 pounds overweight, and I was already going bald at age you know, 17, 18, 19. He said, you know, you're not going you're, you're, you're to be the dashing leading man. You got to get good at the character, guys. You got to get funny. And I, thinking that I was not adept at it, started to really study comedy. I started to watch the great comedians and the great comic actors, watch their films, listen to the albums, and try to understand were there, were there things that, that aided them in being funny? Was there a music to their voice, the way they said things? Was it a particular take? Was it physicality? Was it, you know, what was making them funny? And in particularly in, in films and, and television, uh, it was the way they dealt with what to their character was very high stakes stuff and, and dealing in a funny way. And I, I believe that I was able to pick up a lot of tricks and a lot of, you know, insights in that way. And it made me funnier. And, and I wound up having a career largely as a comic actor. I didn't think I was very funny. So I feel like I was taught comedy. But if I say that to people like Jerry Seinfeld, they'll say, no, 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 no. You were funny. You were funny. You just didn't know you were funny. So, you you know, everybody has mentors and everybody learns from other people, but you can't you either have the DNA of knowing where a funny moment sits or a funny take on something, or you don't. In trying to teach people who are struggling with comic material how to make funny choices, you can get them there. I can direct them to be funny. It's will they find it on their own? Do they have 
that little editor that sits outside of their head as they're looking at stuff that says, well, there are two good choices here, but this one's funnier. Some people don't seem to have that little person. And, and maybe with experience, they, they develop it. But there are certainly some people who are, despite their best efforts, not funny. And I, I, there was also a great story um, Rob Reiner tells about when they were casting A Few Good Men. And every actor that came in was terrific, just terrific. And one of his partners, who was not really uh, uh, in the business, said, oh my God, every actor we're seeing is amazing. They're so good. Where were all these great actors when we were doing, you know, Harry Met Sally and we were doing uh, Spinal Tap and we were doing, and Rob said, well, those were comedies. It's easy to be great when it's not a comedy, <laughs> you know? And, and he was right. He was right. It's, it's great actors, great actors will choke and die uh, sometimes, very often, if they have to do a comedic piece of material. But conversely, oddly enough, Really good comedians are almost always really good actors for some reason. And yet I find it funny that, what, a, maybe a third, a half of all the really memorable movies in any given year are comedies, funny comedies, and they never win Best Picture. You will no. never, ever, no, ever they get see no a love. comedy win Best Picture. I have a theory about that. Yeah. My theory is that if you acknowledge a comedy as Best Picture, it's like saying to the world, you know what? Life is meaningless. Life is silly <laughs> and stupid and has no point. Whereas if you give it to a drama that's inspiring, you give people the idea that there is a meaning and a dignity and a purpose to it all in Absolutely. life. And I can tell you from experience, having created the universe, there's none of that. There's no right. purpose. There's no meaning. There's no anything. It's just a bunch of crazy crap that happens. Yeah. But that's why you can't give an Oscar to a comedy. I'll even go you one worse. I, I, I think it's because most comedies are made for a buck and a half and most dramas are a hundred million dollars. And they go, we're not going to, come on, I spent a hundred million dollars. Give me something. And I, and that we hand them an award. And why are the comedies given such a low budget compared to the dramas? Because generally they don't require a lot of things that the big the dramas require. They don't have large set pieces. They don't have big chases. They don't have a lot of special effects. They don't have a ton of stunts. It, 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 generally, you fill it with a silly premise and a bunch of funny people and you roll the camera. So it, they tend to be, the, 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 the actual cost of making them is generally smaller. Is there, when someone refers to you as a comedic actor, a comedy actor, is there any tiny sense of feeling demeaned by that adjective? <laughs> uh, I know what you're saying. Um, no, no. I, you know, I, I, I actually, I don't know why this is. I've gotten to the point, and I've held it for a long time, that the fact that they're referring to me as anything is kind of amazing. I didn't go into acting thinking that success would look like this. To me, success was, hey, would someone put me on a New York stage and I could make a small living? Not people saying, using my name and knowing who they were talking about. Uh, so th the fact that I walk around in a life that is dressed in this whatever it is, success, celebrity, whatever it is. Sure, most people know me as a comedic actor. Why wouldn't they? Uh, they haven't seen my theater work. They haven't seen the one or two dramatic films I've done. And so to them, I'm a comic actor. Great. Terrific. That made them happy? Great. That was my contribution for them. That's a very good perspective. That's a very fair perspective. I, I can't have that because I'm the only one of me that there is. So sure. for me... It's I deserve all the accolades because there's nobody else to share them with. Who else would there be? 
Unless it's another guy in another division, but we don't know that those those universes. Well, like yet, I said, there so. is no, no, you don't. I do. No, I, yeah. I deal with the paperwork every day, Jason. It's, Which must be it's crushing. It's crushing. Uh, so sorry. I'm so sorry, Jason Alexander. Thank you so much for coming by. Thank you, Lord. It was a pleasure. A pleasure. And that's this week's Godcast. Joan, how cool a guy is Jason Alexander? He was amazing and so just so kind. And he's what we used to call in my small, quaint French 15th century village, a mensch. What? It, what do you? A mensch, like the Yiddish word. It obviously wasn't used in, so it was a joke because we wouldn't have, um, you know what? Never mind. You've explained to me that if you have to explain the joke, then it probably wasn't a funny joke to begin with. So I was just trying to be, just add some levity, just joking. But uh, you know, never mind. It, would, it, 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 it had been such a good show. It had been such a good show up to, up to this moment. I apologize, my lord. I will not make jokes anymore. No, but that's that's not what I'm. That's not even what I'm saying. I'm what saying, are you don't, saying? Don't don't. Godcast I'm is a forever dog production. Executive produced by Alex Ramsey, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and David Jabberbaum. Original music by Gabe Lopez. Joan of Arc appears courtesy of Tara Sands. For more original podcasts, visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free episodes and exclusive bonus content from this show and other. Sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcasts.com slash plus. And if you haven't already, remember to follow God on Twitter at The Tweet of God. Forever. Forever.